So today we're starting a new sermon series which will take us through to the summer holidays. It's a series that's rooted in the Old Testament book of Esther. Now, if truth be told, Esther's really not a very popular book. Uh, if you've got an old-fashioned paper Bible with you, uh, you'll discover that Esther is one of the clean, unthumbed pages in your Bible. If you've got one of those newfangled electronic Bibles, well, it's going to take your device a few milliseconds longer to find Esther, because I very much doubt that Esther is saved in your search history. Of course, our brothers and sisters in the Anglican Church who use the lectionary, if you know how that works, only get to read Esther once every three years. Well, contrast that to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, for example, which they'll read something like 50 times in just one year. Not many people preach on the book of Esther either. Esther's a controversial book in the Bible. Martin Luther, uh, the one who's famous for the 1517 Reformation, not the 1955 Civil Rights Movement, said this about the book of Esther. He simply said, I hate it. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? He said that it's a perverse uh, book and it's filled with much pagan impropriety. And of course, he's right. That is an accurate description of this book. In Esther, you'll find no worship. You'll find that no one quotes scripture. No one is even particularly honouring God. You won't find many people, if any, of outstanding godly character. There's no mention of the great biblical themes of covenant or of God's grace. There doesn't even seem to be any love in Esther. You'll find lots of lust and a lot of sex. There's plenty of that, but not much love. And there's loads of bloodshed. By my maths, about 100,000 people will get killed in the course of this teaching series. And Esther seems to be central to much of that killing, even if she's not doing the killing herself. Now, Esther's one of only two books in the Bible that never mentions the name of God. It shares that honour with Song of Songs, which, if you know the book, is an equally divisive book. Now, all of this ought to leave you uh, wrestling with a couple of questions. First, why on earth are we having a sermon series on this book of the Bible, Esther? And then perhaps a better question. Secondly, why is this book even in the Bible? Now, if you're asking these questions this morning, it's probably because, like most of us, you have what I call a sanctified view of the Bible. This idea that the Bible is about holy people. It's about holy people living holy lives from a holier-than-thou spiritual perspective. And yet the Bible, it seems to me, is actually much more true to life than that. The Bible is full of imperfect disciples living out their discipleship journey imperfectly. The segments of Esther 1 and 2, chapter 1 and 2, that I read for us this morning, remind us, don't they, that the Bible is a very real book. It's about real people in real situations living real lives. And for that reason, I want to suggest to us that we ought to be able to relate to this story. As you'll discover as the weeks go on, the story of Esther is profoundly relevant to our time and to our lives. The book of Esther, the story of Esther, is, a much, is as much about you and me as it is about Esther. If you can read this story of Esther without being personally and profoundly challenged, and dare I see say even changed, then you've completely missed the point of the story. Now, the book of Esther tells us uh, how the Jewish 
festival of Purim came to be. Now, Purim is the celebration of the Jews' deliverance from the genocidal plan of Haman, the prime minister, nearly two and a half thousand years ago. As you read through Esther, which I would encourage you to do and you get home today, it's only about 10 chapters, you'll see that God is not absent. He's invisible, yes, but he is not absent. God's actions are on every single page and in every single line. God's fingerprints are all over this story. God is not named once, which seems odd, doesn't it? When you consider the Bible is supposed to be about God, and yet there is no doubt that God is truly the author and the prime mover of this story. So what is the story all about? Well, chapter one introduces us to the environment of the story, which we need to bear in mind throughout the rest of this series. But also we get introduced to one of the main characters. We're in Persia in the late fifth century before Christ. The Jews are living in exile as refugees in a foreign land. And a king named Xerxes is on the throne. Now, Xerxes is not a godly man. He's a tyrant. He's a dictator. He's the absolute ruler of many nations that stretch from India to somewhere south of what we would know as modern day Iraq. And he rules the people in this story, including the Jews. Now, chapter one introduces us to Queen Vashti, who is Xerxes' wife. Now, if you thought the Queen's Jubilee celebrations went on for a long time, well, Xerxes here in this story is giving a massive party. We've already had 180 days and then he has a week long party for all the people in the citadel. And the theme of the party is very clear. It's look at me. Look how great I am. Look how splendorous I am. Look at my kingdom, my wealth and all this stuff that I've got. I'm such an important man. Now, Xerxes and his mates get very drunk. And they invite Vashti to join the party wearing nothing other than a royal crown. Now, Vashti gets really uh, assertive at this moment. And in no uncertain terms, she says to the king, well, you can get stuffed. No way am I coming in to entertain your mates like that. And then Xerxes responds with some chauvinistic, drunken yuck. He holds a beauty contest to try and find a fitting replacement for his disobedient wife. Now, this is like some really bad soap opera, isn't it? It's like Jeremy Carla is absolute worse. And he pulls in girls from across the empire. He has them dressed up and perfumed up. He gives each of them a trial run in bed. Uh, and then the one who performs the best, he says, well, the promise is you'll become the new queen of Persia. Chapter two, verse seven, enter Esther. She's an imperfect Jewish woman who we read in the text, is absolutely stunning. She's beautiful. And chapter two goes on to outline Esther's rise to power. We're told there that she so pleases the king more than any of the contemporaries that were around her, um, and much encouraged by her uncle Mordecai, who by himself, by the way, is a loyal servant of the king and helps to uncover a plot to assassinate Xerxes. She earns the king's favour, and so does he. Now, this guy Mordecai is a pivotal figure in this drama. He's a Jewish man. He's got great wisdom. He's a tactical thinker. He serves throughout the story as Esther's adoptive father, her advisor, her mentor, even in moments as her conscience. And of course, what you discover as you flick through the pages of uh, the, the scriptures, especially through the Old Testament, is that down through the centuries, God has always used his chosen people, just like Esther, Mordecai, the Jews, 
in a strategic way despite their imperfections. And that's still the promise of God today. He uses those who know him and love him who have become his children. Well, the rest of the book tells us the story of the rise of Esther and the fall of this guy called Haman, who was the prime minister. And then finally, in chapter 10, in the last chapter, the story concludes by telling us that this Feast of Purim is still remembered to this day and why it's remembered. Jews throughout the world will celebrate Purim somewhere around February time around the world. That's the story in a nutshell. So what does this tale, which on the surface looks like a tale of drunkenness, of lust, of corruption and so much violence, have to say to us here at Christchurch Baptist Church in 2022? What is this book that's full of immoral and irreligious characters even doing in the Bible? And just maybe that's the very point that we're supposed to get from this book. This book points to the fact that there's what we might call an irreligious dimension to the Bible, as indeed we might even say there's sometimes an irreligious dimension to God. God is a God who has a funny habit of popping up in unexpected places. Now, that might sound like heresy to suggest that God can sometimes be irreligious. But I guess that's what I mean, that God has a habit of popping up in surprising, oftentimes not religious contexts. It's been traditional, of course, and many of us will have been brought up on this kind of thinking, that God is a God who inhabits a world of religion. God is a God who's present in his holy temple and he's present with his holy people who are gathered around him. God is a God who's at work through the faithful prayers of those who serve him, bringing miracles and healings and salvation and life. And all of that, of course, is true. And all of that does happen, especially within the context of the church. And yet we know, too, that this God, who is the God who's present in his holy temple, is also the God who is present in our story in the pagan temple or in the pagan palace of King Xerxes. We know that God who meets with us when we gather like this by his presence and his Holy Spirit, we know that this God who is present now is also the God who'll be present with us when we get home or when we get down to the beach, what we might call a non-religious context. But here's the big learning point from the book of Esther. The God who works through the prayers of his faithful people is also the God who will still be at work when nobody is praying. The God who works through the prayers of his faithful people is also the God who continues to be faithful even when there are no faithful people to be found. God is faithful even when we are faithful. Less. God is a God who never abandons his promises, no matter how bad things get, no matter how unfaithful his people are. In the book of Esther, nobody, absolutely nobody is faithfully praying to God. In the story, nobody even seems to be consciously thinking about God. But that does not mean that God isn't there. That doesn't mean that God has somehow given up on his people. All of the time, God is fulfilling his promises originally made to Abraham that he would preserve his chosen people, these people in the story. All of the time, God is being true to the prophecies of hope given by the prophet Jeremiah to these people who find themselves in exile as refugees. All of the time, God is acting in amazing and mysterious ways to see that his will will be done at this moment in this point in human history. 
It's just that nobody in the story seems to recognise what's really going on. And, you know, I can identify with that. I can't tell you how many times I've experienced the faithfulness of God despite my unfaithfulness. I can't tell you how many times in my own journey of faith where I've, I've experienced the faithfulness of God even when I've been unaware of his presence with me in any given moment. I can't tell you how many times I've experienced the faithfulness of God even in those seasons when I've doubted that God has even been at work. You see, the story of Esther might seem like a, a huge series of happy coincidences for the Jewish people. Esther, a Jew, managed to get herself into a place of great influence. Mordecai gets saved by the fact that the king had a bad night's sleep one night. The fact that the king was in a good mood when Esther took her life literally into her hands by going to see him uninvited. The fact that Mordecai fortuitously overheard the plot against the king. You see, to the person of no faith, these guys just seem to be getting lucky. But to a person of faith, we call this God's providence. You see, the person of faith sees that God has a plan and that God is a God who will work out his plan, whatever comes. The trouble is, oftentimes the providence of God can only be seen when we look backwards, when we look in the rearview mirror with the benefit of hindsight. God's ways are perfect, even when our ways are imperfect. You see, providence is that great Bible word, that great reality that the Apostle Paul was speaking of when in Romans 8, 28, he said, all things, all things work together for the good of those who love and serve him. Providence doesn't deny that God can and does work through wonderful, miraculous ways, but it also argues that God can also work through very human and very ordinary, even ungodly, we might say irreligious ways, to bring things together for good. You see, providence doesn't deny that God will work through the prayers and through the lives of those who faithfully serve him, but it also affirms the truth that where there's no one praying, where there's no one serving, where nobody is living faithfully, God is still capable of bringing all things together for good so that his will and his plans and purposes are fulfilled. And I just wonder today whether you need to know that truth in your own life today. That God is a God who is at work even when you can't see him. You might not sense God's presence. He might be invisible, but he is there and he's working for your good. It might be in your life circumstance today that you're stuck in an habitual loop of sin and you feel the most unfaithful person on the planet. Would you hear the truth today that God is faithful even when we are unfaithful? It might be today that you're struggling with some situation or some life circumstance that on the surface makes absolutely no sense. But God in his providence and God in his sovereignty is working something out and it is for your good. It's the promise of scripture. I guess the challenge is to hang in there as faithfully as we possibly can in the sure and the certain knowledge that God is working, even if he's working in what seems to be a mysterious way to us. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I find this an amazing and a comforting truth that can so easily be missed in the story of Esther. These things that can so quickly get written off as coincidence. Of course, it's a truth, too, that you might also find just a little bit disturbing because the more discerning amongst us, well, by now will have worked out, well, 
if these things are true, then it suggests that we might not be as essential to the plans of God as we might have thought that we were. It reminds me today that, after all, I'm not the centre of the universe, but God is the centre of the universe. And for that, I and I suspect you are deeply thankful. I wonder if you know what I mean. You see, in my less humble moments, and I, I do have them, believe it or not, I like to think the whole of the spiritual uh, future of Christchurch Baptist Church is entirely dependent upon me and, and upon us. In my less humble moments, I can forget that it's God who says that he will build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I believe, of course I do, that God has called us together as a church. I believe that God has given us a mission in this area. I believe that God has called us to reach out to those who don't yet know Jesus, that God has called us to build a Christian community that makes no distinction between black and white or rich or poor, educated or uneducated, between male and female, between those who we might deem to be righteous and those who are less than righteous. I do believe that that is God's will for us, that that is our calling and that if we're faithful people and we serve God with all of our hearts and we open up our homes to one another and so on, then we will see amazing things happen in the economy of God and God's will will be done. And yet if I read the book of Esther rightly, it would also suggest to me that even when we don't get our acts together, even when we don't work well together as a church, even when and if stuff happens and we close our minds, we close our hearts or there's disunity, we close our homes or our lives to one another. Here's the thing I learned from Esther. The will of God will still be done. We're going to return to this in future weeks, but there's a passage in Esther that looks very directly at this precise concern, which is perhaps the most famous book that you probably a verse that you have heard in the book. In chapter 4, verses 13 to 14, Mordecai, the advisor to Esther, this adoptive father, says to Esther, If you keep silence at such a time as this, then relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? And then here's the verse you've heard. Perhaps you've come to royal dignity, says Mordecai, for such a time as this. For such a time as this as this. In other words, if Esther fails to do what's required of her by Mordecai, by God, Mordecai seems to be convinced that deliverance will rise up from the, for the Jews from some other quarter. You see, somehow Mordecai has grasped this idea that there's a greater destiny controlling the future of his people than a royal decree of Xerxes. Mordecai realises that the, the will of God trumps the will of Xerxes or Putin or whatever name you want to put in there, every single time. Now Mordecai doesn't call this in the story God's plan, he doesn't even call it anything like providence, but Mordecai seems to believe that things happen for a reason, that God is in control and he begins to, he dares to wonder whether or not this might be Esther's destiny, whether this could be a task for her. And yet he's got the humility to say, but hang on a minute Esther, if you don't stand up for such a time as this in this moment, then God's will will still be done, but just in another way, in a different place. Now, I find all of this really encouraging because Mordecai might not have got all of his theology worked out and he might not have read his Bible well enough to be able to quote scripture in this situation. But he somehow does intuitively believe the providence of God. 
And we can help Mordecai today by filling out the blanks and saying, look, as we look back in history, we see how God has made a way in the person of Jesus, in the death and the resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. You see, God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. And, you know, it's no coincidence that Esther's been put into this position where she's able to save her people from destruction. Why? Because God's hand is in this. God's hand is indeed calling her into this particular role and into this particular function. God's been working in this mysterious way through seemingly irreligious events in order that Esther can be given this divine opportunity to be faithful in service for her gods. And yet if she doesn't do it, if she fails in her calling, if she keeps her mouth shut and consigns her people to destruction, then Mordecai is right. The promises of God will prove true. God will never, ever abandon his people. God will never, ever not fulfill a promise that he has made. God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. God never gives up on his promises. God is faithful when we are not. God works out all things for the good of those who love him. God is at work even when we can't see it. And I wonder today, do you need to be reminded of these truths in your own life, in your own journey? Would you know that God is at work? Would you know that God is sovereign? Whatever it is that you're facing today, whatever your circumstance, whatever your challenge, no matter how faithful you feel you've been in your walk and in your journey, of course, yes, God calls us to ever-increasing faithfulness. But God is faithful when we're not faithful. God's grace is sufficient even for us today. And God will make a way. And God will use your challenging circumstances. He's a sovereign God who in his providence makes all things work together for those who love him.